0: Good evening. Thank you, Alison, for uh, your influence on the service already uh, wow. through the choices of, of hymns. And uh, I'm delighted to, to welcome you Thank to you, Gordon. the front. Uh, we agreed three questions a couple of weeks ago.
1: Yes. Uh,
0: this afternoon, they grew to about 30. Oh, but goodness. We'll, we'll see how we get on. <laughs> uh, don't fear. We're not going to be here all night. Uh, Alison is somebody I've known about. Rather than in person for a long time. Uh, her husband of 42 years, Douglas, was a Presbyterian minister who I knew when I was working with UCCF and then through his work with Open Doors, both of them. Alice is a mother of six, a grandmother of six. Six. It's pretty easy, six. And uh, her eldest son, Jonathan, mm-hmm. was a leader of the CU in Coleraine. I don't know whether it coincided with uh, other Coleroy Nights, but that was during my time with UCCF, and I appreciated his fellowship and all that he brought to uh, leading the CU at that time. And I studied with her younger sister, Jocelyn, at All Nations in 1980-something or other. Just happened to forget where it was. Northern Ireland's a small place. place, Yes, it was. So I've been in your family home in Lisburn uh, and uh, only discovered that you were actually her sister. Mm-hmm. A few months ago, mm-hmm. and John and I acted as mentors for Alan and Julie Crew when they were leading an Exodus team, and it was Alison who taught us about that role. So lots of connections, <laughs> typical Northern Ireland, as yes, you say. Anyway, thank you for coming. Not at all. Gordon. And uh, the three areas of our conversation <laughs> are going to be about your story of of faith and family, mm-hmm. and also the experience of living with terminal illness and death. Mm-hmm. And we're going to talk as well about your perspectives on being welcomed and welcoming others. So that's the direction. Why don't we start off with family background. Tell us a bit about yourself, where you're from.
1: Okay. Um, Very often, well, first of all, my story is no more special than your story. But here I am, I've landed in Windsor Baptist, and I really appreciated Richard this morning saying, you know, one of us, because I haven't yet signed on the dotted line. (laughs) And I appreciated that Richard very much. Um, When somebody asks me where I've come from, that's a very difficult um, question for me because I've just moved for the 19th time. So uh, they have not, I'm not a compulsive mover, they have all been part of my journey of life. So I don't feel I've got any roots anywhere. Although I did spend my childhood in Cavan, in Southern Ireland. Um, So I started off there, and I met my husband Douglas in um, Edinburgh, where we were both training. And we came back and um, Douglas was then working in the Newtonards Road in the height of the Troubles. Um, then he, we moved to First Killalaya County Down for three and a half years. Then we had five years in the States. Very interesting part of our story. And then we came back to Bally Henry Presbyterian Church and Douglas then took a sideways move to work with um, Open Doors and our persecuted brothers and sisters. And what a wonderful privilege that was and how much we learned from them. They teach us so much. And yes, we have six children and we got the mix right. We've got three boys and three girls and they're all scattered now and um, six grandchildren.
0: Thank you. And, And I'm sure in that journey of 19 moves, Uh, We're going to hear about how the Lord has been at work, but tell us how you first came to trust Jesus.
1: Yes, um, I came to trust Jesus at a a school in Lisburn, and uh, it was Friends School Lisburn. and I know that the headmaster of that school is part of this fellowship. So Friends is a very important part in my journey. It was through the school scripture union there that I found faith in my middle teens, and um, my best friend in that school was actually Stephen Ray's, White, Stephen Ray's sister-in-law, Ruth Kirk. And she and I sat in... in s- yes. So, yeah, it's a small world, Northern Ireland. And my faith be- was, transformed my life. I had some very difficult childhood experiences. And when I became a Christian at 14 or 15, it just transformed my life. And,
0: and your relationship with God is certainly something that is obvious in uh, your life, Ruth, uh, Alison. So so in some ways, as we hear your story, we're hearing the Exodus 34 story, aren't we? Uh, of the way in which God has revealed himself to you. Uh, you mentioned meeting in Douglas in... In Hidden, Scotland? Yes. Uh, what were you doing there?
1: I was training to as a speech and language therapist. Yeah. And there was no um, place in Ireland to train, so off I went to Scotland. Yeah. And Douglas was doing his second degree in Scotland in divinity.
0: And you went there as a, as a Christian. Uh, what did you learn about this relationship with Jesus? How did you learn to pray? What, what about those kind of disciplines? That, as a teenager, I presume you became... A follower of Jesus. How did that grow?
1: Yes, it really grew. Well, first of all, my my family um, taught me to pray as a child, and we prayed together as a family. And then my school scripture union. In those days, we um, came, before we came to start a class, scripture union was praying together before school started. It was amazing. We prayed together at lunchtime, and then. Um, Yes, and then I got involved with OM. So if you've got an OM experience, boy, do you know how to pray. Because we did those all nights of prayer. Gordon, you'd be familiar with those. And then um, as I moved, when I came back from OM uh, as a later teen, um, we started a group of women of us praying together. And 50 years later, that group is still praying together. Um, We meet once a month, and that has been the most valuable group that I have belonged to in my whole experience of life, Um, the commitment to pray with that group of women.
0: That's wonderful. Certainly, I know that OM discipline of every Thursday night we had a a night of prayer. I I do appreciate the balance of, of one OM leader, Nigel Lee, used to say, you're better in your bed thinking about the prayer meeting than in your prayer meeting thinking about bed. Bad. But it is difficult, isn't it? Prayer is not easy. I mean, we, we yep. uh, do you have to work at it. What would you say to somebody who says, I just find it difficult? It's, it's hard. I
1: think it's a discipline. I think, as you know, my experience as a mother of six children and being a pastor's wife. I mean, we had four children under five at one stage and I learned to pray through the night because that was the time I was most awake. And um, so I think you have to go with the rhythms of life. Certainly this last season that I've just come through and helping Douglas home to heaven, I found it very difficult to pray and I've certainly felt the experience of others praying for me it was more the concentration to pray that I didn't have. But I didn't, I didn't let that bother my relationship with Jesus. I knew he loved me.
0: Okay. Yeah. Well, that's, that's very helpful. Uh, but mm-hmm. speech and language therapist, mother of six, uh, involved in ministry with your husband, how did you navigate all of that? Uh, you talk about rhythms of life. That was obviously a very intense time. Were your expectations...
1: I had, I had no expectations of what that would be like. Um, now, I was the oldest girl of eight in a family. So when it came to having my family, I was very used to, you know, I half-reared my youngest younger brothers and sisters. So becoming a mum was not the big challenge that I think it is for um, parents today. Um, becoming a pastor's wife, Douglas um, always said, that I was his wife first, and the mother of his children. He had no expectations of me to be involved in, in uh, church life, although I was very involved. And that changed as the children got older. I remember when we came back from America, we had five children then. And I felt very much, I must be at home with these children and resettle them. So I didn't do the typical minister's wife thing. I was at home with those children, and I've never regretted that. Um, So I think it's just knowing what is right for you. Douglas also used to say to me, you know, I wish they'd make a film of our lives. You know, we're really very normal, just like them out there, and um, yes.
0: Well, what would you say as you reflect on all of those experiences about trusting God, with your life, with your children, your future, your experiences?
1: We just were so secure in our identity in Jesus and in our calling and what he called us to do. Um, were we had some very difficult experiences working through the troubles, um, burying policemen, uh, painful. I remember also Gordon coming back from the States after five years Um, coming through two very difficult church situations. And we came back with 300 pounds in my socks. That was all we had. I wouldn't let the bank transfer it because they were going to charge us 50 pounds to do that. Five children, no home and no job. And, you know, that weighed heavy on Douglas's heart, but God was so faithful in twelve weeks time we were in Bally Henry Presbyterian Church and that's unheard of for the Presbyterian Church to go through that rhythm, but he was so faithful and so we'd we'd proved that that's just one experience.
0: You lived with Douglas for over forty years and a quarter of that time, roughly, he hmm. was battling one form of cancer or another?
1: Yes, Douglas lived with cancer for 11 years. Um, He was 57 when he got the diagnosis. And we weren't together when we got the diagnosis. He was on an open door strip down south. And I was up in Port Stewart living at that time. And um, do you know what came to my mind immediately when he told me the diagnosis? Immediately came to my mind, Gordon. This may take us by surprise but doesn't take God by surprise, doesn't take our Heavenly Father by surprise. And I ask you the question, and I ask myself the question, do we really believe that there's nothing on the agenda of our lives that God doesn't know about, or hasn't His grace isn't sufficient for that journey?
0: So you were part away from Douglas? at that moment when he received a diagnosis Mm -hmm. and that's your response. How did he respond?
1: Um, When we came together, I think on this journey of um, edging gently home to heaven, I call it, um, that was a lovely phrase that God gave me towards the end of his life. um, Because we made the choice Um, to live our lives through the lens of eternity. We did not see this as a fear journey. Douglas never saw this journey as a battle. And I I need to read to you the words. We, We actually spoke together about this journey and what it was like for us. And the last time we spoke together was six weeks before he died at the New Horizon Conference. And these were his words. I don't understand why I have cancer, but I believe very deeply that my cancer is part of the purpose of God for my life. It is the path He has called me to follow, and it is a path that I gladly walk on. He knows what He's doing. He is wise. He is good. He's merciful. He's gracious. He's intentional, he makes no mistakes, and he is sovereign. So that was, you know, our foundation on this journey. And he often used this quote too when we spoke together. Um, And it's a quote that Kay Warren has used after her son took his life. Joy is the settled assurance that God is in control of all the details of our lives and the quiet confidence that everything is going to be all right and the, de- the determined choice to praise him in all things. And that's how we lived our lives and we spoke about that together and um, that's what it was like.
0: And that obviously was a learning Process of being orientated towards something else, towards yeah. God's purposes, yeah. towards heaven.
1: It was the promises of God's word that sustained us, and you know some of the, the phrases that are um, David uses. I just love. Recently, he said to us, "Do you trust God and it, with your circumstances?" Um, And and faith is all about trusting God and the promises that he has given. And so we trusted God in the promises that he has given. Mm -hmm. Jesus said, you know, I go to prepare a place for you. Mm -hmm. And um, then our focus was on heaven. And Douglas was edging gently home to heaven. And I know you're going to ask me the question about healing. Well, go ahead. Yes. We believed with all our hearts that that God could heal Douglas at any moment and at any time. Um, But we had the faith to believe that, you know, the vows that we took together until death us do part. That one day we were going to be uh, separated by death. I do love the writings of Rick Warren, who talks about not being terminally ill, but about being transitionally ill. You know, death is our ultimate upgrade into his very presence. And I also love um, what he has said, you know, that, that this life is not all there is. It is only the dress rehearsal for the real production. Mm. Mm. And, and that's how I live my life now. And I feel... I'm just in the waiting room for glory. Um, uh, Some people say to me, very often, I say to me, how long is it since you've lost Douglas? I don't feel I have lost him. I never use that term, and I always say, I haven't lost Douglas, I know exactly where he is. He's in the presence of Jesus. And I just see some lovely older generations down here nodding their head. You know, it's that we are just in the waiting room for glory. And sometimes I think we need to know what it is, meaningfully, counterculturally, to live our lives through that lens of eternity with the hope of heaven. Towards the end of Douglas's life, people would ask me how he was. And I would say, well, Douglas had two primary cancers, he had 40 chemotherapies, 33 radiotherapies. He had secondaries in his lungs, his liver, and finally his brain. And I can't remember what I was going to say to you after that. Um, so he was full of cancer. He was, oh yes, people would ask me, you know, how he was. And, and I would say, well, he's, he, he's, um, he's just finished this chemotherapy. And you know, Gordon, while Douglas was on chemotherapy, he worked for the first six years that he had chemotherapy. And then we went into retirement. He then preached every Sunday. And he would go down on a Friday to get his chemotherapy into his pickline, line. And then they'd put it on his belt to go into him over the weekend. What did Douglas do? Every Sunday he was up preaching. And the people used to ask him, you know, what is this? can of coke on his belt and they couldn't believe that it was chemotherapy we didn't live our lives in isolation as the cancer people tell you to do obviously if somebody came with a bad cold we would say well you know maybe not this time but come back again he got out there and he used every opportunity so when people asked me how he was towards the end of his life and the, I'd say, well, this is what's happening. And they'd say, oh, that's terrible. Oh, how are you coping? I feel so bad for you. And I just asked the Lord one day, I said, Lord, I need you to give me something that will dispel this despairing wave that is coming at me. And that's what he gave me. So when somebody asked me how he was, I said, he's edging gently home to heaven. And people didn't know what to do with that. And it just relieved me of that wave of despair.
0: Thank you for your revision of our terminology, Alison. That's very helpful. I remember one of the last times I saw you all as a family. I can't quite place it. We haven't talked about this, but it was a trip up the Right. And and we were up the Mourns and met Douglas and a number of you anyway, and it, it seemed like it wasn't wasn't that long ago, so he was certainly somebody who lived life to the full. Oh,
1: he totally lived life th- to the full. I need to tell you that um, he almost had like an Enoch experience uh, when God took him home. He was walking with me on the beach on Tuesday, and he was home in heaven on Sunday. I mean, it was truly glorious experience. And um, I have written in this little booklet for anybody who wants to take a copy of caring well of what that was like for me and there are others who have written in it as well the boundaries um that you need to have if you're a carer great
0: thank you yes and they're available here
1: they're available tonight i have plenty of copies with me so you're very welcome to take that and i also love when we're talking about heaven just to read the scripture from colossians um that paul encouraged the believers and in, in Colossians. And it's very suitable after taking communion together. Since you became alive again, so to speak, when Christ rose from the dead, now set your sights on the rich treasures and joys of heaven, where he sits beside God in the place of honor and power. Let heaven fill your thoughts. Don't spend your time worrying about things down here. You should have as little desire for this world as a dead person does. Your real life is in heaven with Christ and God. And my question is for all of us tonight is, are we homesick for heaven?
0: Alison, welcome and hospitality has been important for you. How did it work when Douglas went home to heaven and you were attending church as a single person?
1: Yes. Um, Douglas and I in our preparation for um, him going home to heaven had moved back to Port Stewart where he wanted to leave me there as a widow. But as you can see, the Lord had other ideas. (laughs) And um, because of the church family that um, I was going to be left there with. I had no illusions Gordon about what it was going to be like um, as a widow being left behind. Um, I mentor a lot of, well not a lot, I mentor about six or seven um, young women down in this area and as I mentor that generation I've discovered there's a huge amount of loneliness Um, in that generation there's also a huge amount of loneliness in my generation so I had no illusions about that and I went along to this church where I was well known but you know there there were some Sundays I used to think I'm going home on my own here and I used to think Lord this doesn't feel nice going home on my own nobody seems to be either afraid to interact with me or what to say or to give, give that invitation. So the conversation with the Lord ended like this, I got a little invitation printed. And on that invitation, I just said, you're very welcome to come and share lunch with me. And I put a list, but please bring, if you've dietary requirements, And then I put a list, but please bring with you. And it was salads or cake or fruit or anything. It wasn't organized, it wasn't planned. And I invited about eight to 10 groups of people and I mixed them all up. Families, elderly, singles, um, divorced, disabled. And we put all the food on the table. And I watched that whole church family about this size of people here getting to know each other. You know, we come in on a Sunday and we just connect and then we're gone. We don't have time really to listen to each other's heart. And I watched that whole church family getting to know each other and I did that for once a month and I changed then the people every month so it was a group of completely different group but there was one person that I invited to them all and that was a lady who was living with mental health illness and I watched in the church over the years that few people interacted with her and I brought her to all of the um, lunches that I had and I watched the whole church beginning to get to know this lady And then when the Lord suddenly asked me to move, it was a very sudden move to Moira. I was not expecting to move. And because my three daughters are all down in this area, grandchildren here, mentoring here, working with Exodus here, and a friend said, Alison, you're going to have to think about moving. And I said, Lord, I'm willing to step into it, but would you please make it easy? Couldn't have made it easier. I looked at one bungalow in Moira, and that's where I'm living, and then I went up the road, put my house in the market. It was sold in a week, and I was moved in eight weeks. But I said, Lord, what about my friend who's living with mental health illness? And the Lord said, you've done your job. The church knows her now, and every time I go back, I watch them caring for her. It's wonderful.
0: Alison, you took a seminar last summer at New Horizon on this subject and mm-hmm. t- told that story and other experiences of going to different churches and yes. uh, how you approached it and how a church related to somebody coming in on their own.
1: Yeah.
0: Do you want to say a wee bit about that?
1: Yes. Um, people said to me, why are you leaving that wonderful fellowship on the North Coast? And I just said to them, well, I'm, I I just feel the Lord wants me to move and it has been a wonderful move for me it wasn't until I moved that I realized how good a move it has been and I said to people well listen the Lord's been faithful in the past he has a church family for me somewhere I'm going to take my time I'm not going to rush at it so I took a whole year at stepping in and out of church families um all around the place and what a fascinating journey that was um, Gordon and it really helped me to understand why I hear from the young people that I interact with when they go to university or they move with jobs or whatever and they'll say to me it's a very lonely experience to try and find a new church family and uh, I could then Identify with them and fully understand what that felt like.
0: You had a great one liner in that, one of the many one liners I jotted down, but I'm going to test your memory here. A person alone in a church, uh, how did you finish that line? Do you remember?
1: Is, a, is a, it an emergency. Is an emergency. Yeah. A, is, a single person alone in a church is an emergency. And I think you know we need to get to begin to live I think God is calling us to live counterculturally today and that is within the church family of God and how do we do that together you know are we going to live this isolationist life that many of us are now living you know two generations ago you you um found single people living with their families not anymore and elderly people living with their families, not anymore, and I think there 's challenges for us in the church and how we live counterculturally and here 's one: why do we sit in the same seat every Sunday? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I loved the church that I was involved in when the offering time came and the children left. The pastor said, now I want you all to get up out of your seats and go and sit beside somebody you don't know. Mm. That's really very simple. You know, the, the, the solutions to how we interact with each other, it's not rocket science. This morning, Gordon, as I was driving home, I realized that in this church family, I had spoken to George from China, Sally and Mary from Nigeria, Anita from India, the lovely Slovakian family that I walked out with who were leading worship this morning, Reza from Iran, and there was a a sixth one, and I can't remember from somewhere else, and I couldn't believe it. And I think Windsor family the Lord has brought a mission field to us. Let's grasp the opportunity. And all the students that are here, see Sarah down there. Um, I have, I have um, given myself the challenge of connecting with one student in this fellowship and bringing her home. She's come from England, and she's here with us looking out for the stranger.
0: There is a cultural change you talked about. There's an opportunity all around us. What is it then that stops us extending this grace of hospitality that was so much part of the early church and Absolutely. is seen in other cultures? Yeah. Uh, why do you think it's so difficult to approach somebody and say hello?
1: I think um, we, we're, we're allowing the culture of this generation to begin to filter into our church life. Um, those of us who are older and I'm now in my 70th 70th year. um, We used to have hospitality hugely amongst our um, fellowships and homes. We would never dream now of going and knocking on somebody's door except I still do that a lot. That's one of the things I did when I felt lonely After Doug died, I just got up and got out and went and started visiting. Knocked people's doors. So I think it's a cultural thing. We need to be risk takers with each other and not to be afraid of doing that. I love um, John 13. It talks about, um, this is Jesus saying, I'm giving you a new commandment Love each other just as much as I love you. Your strong love for each other will prove to the world that you are my disciples. And so how do we do that together? And the, the foundation for Christian hospitality is the act of God's hospitality towards us and what we've just celebrated here um, this evening. God's willingness to send his son and Jesus's willingness to come and die for us. And that was costly and sacrificial. And our love for each other needs to be that costly and sacrificial. Don't gravitate towards the the holy huddle, as I call it, those that you know. Go and find somebody every Sunday that you don't know. And I think that will transform your story and it'll transform our fellowship and you'll get to know um other people
0: Alison, you've moved 19 times in uh, within those 70 not be years indiscreet and ask exactly you said 70 ish but anyway we're we're moving for the first time in 85 years wow. 90 years but it's a big move for us we're moving to our new home on the Lisburn Road, what would you say to us as we think about opening the doors to lots more of the people who just live up and down the Lisburn Road?
1: Well, I just think it's the most amazing opportunity that we have um, to, and that Scripture talks about if we have love for each other, let's get it right inside the church first before we attempt to um, reach out, and because that in itself will be a witness to the whole community. And there's lots of ways that we can do that in today's digital world, and how we care for each other.
0: I think we'll just say to be continued, Alison, because this is a conversation that I think we should come back to. Thank you so much for telling us as Paul wrote to the Colossians, he said, or the Philippians, was, We loved you so much. We were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our whole lives as well. And you have shown us what the gospel looks like in your life. So thank you for that. That's
1: well, a pleasure. So you've picked a final hymn. Final Tell hymn. Tell us a wee bit about what that is. Yes. That's. This final hymn, and thank you to the band for learning it, because I think they didn't know it. Um, this hymn was old hymn was given to Douglas and I at the very beginning of our cancer journey by a dear friend who is an artist and drew us, gave us a painting, The Eye of the Storm. In heavenly love abiding, no change my heart shall fear. And this was foundational for us. It was sung at Douglas's Thanksgiving service. And safe is such confiding, for nothing, nothing changes here. The storm may roar about me, my heart may low be laid. But God is round about me, and can I be dismayed? And the last verse Green pastures are before me, which I have not yet seen. Bright skies will soon be o'er me, where the dark clouds have been. My hope. I cannot measure. My path to life is free. My Savior has my treasure, and he will walk with me. And he has walked with me. And I love another old hymn that means so much. Music actually is my soul food. You know, we sing words, no, no, fear, in, no fear in life. What are are those? No guilt in life, no fear in death. Do we really believe those words? And when Douglas was taken into hospital on the Wednesday before he died, brain tumor, he could no longer speak to me, but he still could write. And he took the piece of paper that I was keeping his medication on, and he wrote on the top of the piece of paper, in heavenly love abiding, still applies no change my heart shall fear so he was just saying to me I'm secure and I know you're secure and that's the meaning of this hymn to us so thank you for singing it and thank you band for learning it.